Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Well, as our children go off to Sunday school, we have an opportunity to reflect more deeply on this new commandment that Jesus has given his disciples to love one another. I invite you to listen to God's word as it comes to us from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning with the ninth verse. Jesus said to them, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious and loving God, you have called us your friends. And we have come to know you as a friend in Jesus. So speak to us now. Open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A new commandment Jesus gives his disciples, and it's a new beginning. And I can't help but think that maybe this is a good place for a new beginning yet again. For we are torn by strife, enmity, tribalism in our day. Perhaps you have witnessed in the last week the escalation of violence once again in the Holy Land at the border fence between the Gaza Strip and Israel. In his book, Blood Brothers, Father Elias Shakur, who's a Malkite priest in, in the Palestinian areas, uh, in fact, Father Shakur was here back in 2013, and many of you may have had a chance to hear from him. When he was a boy and his family had been displaced by the return of the Jews to Palestine following World War II, there were tensions over land and home. Families still had to raise their children and still hope for a better future for the generations that would come after them. Elias Shakur was a young child at the time. His father, Michael, approached the bishop and said, Bishop, excuse me, I have a request of you also. 
The bishop nodded politely with a hint of weariness in his smile. He said, what is it, Michael? I have a son, my youngest. His name is Elias. He's a good student, and I want to send him to a good school. Please, can you help me? Now, others that were present in that exchange were a little bit indignant with Michael for asking for something so personal for his family. They were all trying to get their homes back and their land. But the bishop smiled and said, let me think on this for a while, Michael. Come and see me before I leave the village. Well, though he didn't have a proper school where Elias Shakur could go to school, the bishop later explained that there was an orphanage near his home, and if Michael and his wife would send Elias with him, he would welcome them there, and the bishop himself would personally look to his education. Michael accepted that offer at once on behalf of his son with deep gratitude. His mother, of course, was less eager to send her son off, but she relented and agreed. And then his father, Michael, took Elias aside. He writes, there was a slight catch in his voice as he explained in a few days. We will take you to the bus. You're going to Haifa on the coast to study with the bishop. This is a wonderful opportunity for you, Elias. You will never have such a chance here in Gish. And there's another thing, he said, pausing. Now Father searched my eyes with his steady, serious gaze. You're not being sent away to be spoiled by privilege. Learn all you can from the bishop. If you become a true man of God, you will know how to reconcile enemies, how to turn hatred into peace. Only a true servant of God can do that. Elias writes, I could scarcely fathom such an enormous sounding task. At 12 years old, I had never seen beyond our own hills. End quote. Now, when I read this story of this encounter between Jesus and the disciples, I get this image of this enormous sounding task. Love one another and go into the world and produce fruit. The disciples were older, they were more mature, but I can't help but think that centuries earlier in that same part of the world, they could scarcely fathom such an enormous sounding task. Love one another as I've loved you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. You're not being sent away to be spoiled by privilege. Learn all you can. Because to become a child of God, to become a friend of Jesus, you will learn how to love, how to reconcile enemies, and how to turn hatred into peace. Only someone who is friends with the living God can do that. Perhaps when uh, you were young as I was once, 
There was quite a lot of talk back in those years about the relative merits of having Jesus as your personal friend. Some felt it was a bit blasphemous to treat Jesus so familiarly and so casually as if he were some kind of a buddy. I can remember hearing people pray with this sense of the friendship of Jesus in a rather, some would regard, disrespectful way. You know, Hey, JC, what's up? I'm having a tough day today. I could use a little help. On the other hand, some I can remember use that archaic language that you still see in the King James Version of the Bible or in the even Revised Standard Version from the 40s, not the new Revised Standard. But I've heard people pray in sort of glowing, magnificent terms, Thou who art God of all creation, magnificent is thy glory. Beyond our knowing, what are we that you're mindful of us? Which is it? God as our personal buddy and friend or some distant deity that we need to use a whole different kind of language to encounter? Is it transcendence or is it imminence? Well, it's both. Is God radically other beyond our comprehension or yet Is God close enough to us to be called our friend? I want you to think of your best friend. Somebody you can tell anything to. You can can talk to without having to parse your words, knowing they will understand. Is Jesus that kind of a friend to you? You see, the Jesus we encounter in the gospel is not a God who gives us the answers for our lives. Instead, he gives us himself as our friend, as one who is closer than we know. The language we use to describe all of that is secondary. What matters is that we can know God in Jesus Christ as a friend and we can learn to be loved and in turn to love others as he loves us. I was so grateful to learn as a young man that Jesus was more than some distant deity but was personally interested in my life and became a friend to me. But as the years have gone by, 40, 50 years now, it's led me to a deeper sense of awe and wonderment. And I can confess with the disciples too, my Lord, my God. At the heart of this text of Scripture is that confession captured in the old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. We have been chosen to go and bear fruit, to love others. It's an enormous sounding task. But Jesus never sent his disciples out all alone in order to do that. It was two by two. It's a task we share with one another. Love is central to our faith, central to our own happiness According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, that famous text of Scripture, faith 
hope and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. We tend to think of love in terms of romance, but the ancient Greeks had several words for love. The word used in this text, agape, eros, philos. For us, for many of us at least, the highest form of love is a romantic love. But up to the Middle Ages, romantic love was considered a misfortune. It dominates our songs today. It dominates the themes of our movies, at least when my wife gets to pick. <laughs> love. Love between family members, between friends, love of country, love of nature. These were all more important loves. Even the fact that Jesus commands love sounds strange to us because how do you command a certain feeling, a romantic feeling? Love is commanded because it's not a feeling, it's an action. And it's an action that has a way of ennobling our lives and enabling our lives to rise to their highest level. So this is a stretch, but bear with me here. I think love has to begin at a different place than it does for many of us. In Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem entitled The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, a strange old man stops a party of wedding guests and despite their protestations, he insists that he has to tell them a story as his penance for a crime he had committed long ago when he was a sailor. What the sailor actually did was really quite trivial. It happened on a voyage in the South Atlantic. Good weather had turned to ice and fog, which was an ominous sign. However, the spirits of those on board the ship were lifted when an albatross was spotted following the ship to the delight of the sailors. The men took their good fortune for granted. When the weather turned and the ship was guided safely through the ice flows by that bird that accompanied the ship, one day that old man confessed to the wedding guests he shot the bird for no reason. And the other sailors cheered his success. But as a result of this senseless killing, the ship was becalmed. And after many days of suffering from the bitter cold and then from heat and from lack of water, the men became enraged with the sailor. They hung the dead albatross around his neck to single him out as the guilty party. The sailor now came to hate and cursed that dead bird and despised his own miserable fate and his own stupidity. Still, his, peasant, his penance was not complete. As the days went by, the ship was visited by death, a ghostly ship, the entire crew dies. The mariner is completely alone. He tries to pray, but his heart is all dried up. And in his loneliness, the mariner begins to watch the moon rising over the water and the creatures of the deep, their beauty and their happiness. It's then that a radical change occurs for him. And here's how it's described in the poem. 
a sprig of love gushed from my heart. And I blessed those sea creatures unaware. This strange new vision meant that the mariner was finally free to pray. And at the moment he's liberated from the albatross, the cross that was hung around his neck, he gazes at the water, snakes moving around the ship, and something welled up within him to which he could only give the name love. And he suddenly felt grateful for them. Not because they were any use to him, because they were not. Not because he liked them. He found them strangely beautiful, but not attractive. The experience was something quite different from this. It was gratitude for their existence. End quote. This sailor who had pointlessly killed the albatross, he failed to recognize it as something which existed apart from his own interests. He had seen the bird only from his own selfish point of view. He had seen it as something to shoot just for fun. The whole world existed as something with himself at the center. Nothing else was recognized as the center of existence. His point of view was the only point of view. But then suddenly, he saw these slimy things in the sea existed quite apart from himself. They had a life of their own, apart from any use he could make of them, apart from whatever they looked like there was a beauty even though it was repulsive to him to escape for a moment from seeing everything from his own point of view to let these things be independent of himself brought him to an experience of perfect love now I told you it was a strange tale And however trivial the act of shooting that albatross, I think Coleridge has shown us what enables us to love. Fundamental to the experience of love is a loss of self-concern and self-interest. It's to stop worrying about how useful things or others may be to us. And instead to pay attention to them as a separate center of reality. Usually we experience others not as centers of value in themselves, but as beings in orbit around ourselves. We're the center of our own universe. And because of that, we don't see others as good. Like God sees them in the creation story. We see others only in orbit around ourselves. We're the center of the universe. And like that sailor, we kill the reality of other things. We destroy it, we cover it over by allowing only ourselves to really matter. It's as though we alone exist. 
And the ancient mariner found redemption by finding his way out of a self-defined world into a world of other realities. See, I think we tend to love because of the relative value of others for our lives. Because they bring something unique or some quality to us. Because we're not the center of the universe and we're not the only ones that matter. I think this invitation of God and Jesus Christ to see the world differently, to frame the world quite differently, with ourselves no longer the most important person in the picture, only then can we love. All of us have a pressing need to be loved properly. And ironically, we all need so badly to be recognized and loved that we ourselves are unable to recognize others. That's why I think this commandment to love becomes so important. It cuts the nerve on our self-centeredness. We become reconstituted in a different world, not one of our own making, but one in which God exists, has made the world, and has created all of it. And it is good. When we understand and embrace God's love for us in Jesus Christ, this one who calls us friends, not subjects, not servants, he loves us as our best friend loves us. And we stop seeing others in terms of their value to us, in terms of what they can contribute to our own happiness. We begin to see others have ultimate value in themselves. It changes the way we relate to one another. We love them for who they are. Rather for than for what they can become in my life. And the albatross in our own necks falls away. And instead we begin to love others for themselves rather than expecting them to orbit around what really matters, us. And reflecting on this passage, St. Augustine reflected on the fact that God commands what he gives and gives what he commands. He commands us to love and then he gives us that love in order that we might keep the commandment. This takes love out of the realm of sentimentality and it leads to real self-giving. You did not choose me, I chose you. To go and bear fruit. To love one another. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another, says the Lord. Well, thanks be to God for what sounds like an enormous task. But it calls us out of our petty selfhood into a world of God's making and redeeming. We are being sent into the world not to be spoiled by privilege, but so we can become children of God and friends of Jesus, learning how to turn hatred into love. 
It's the hope for our families. It's the hope for our communities. It's the hope for our world. And it may just be the key to ennobling and enabling our lives. Thanks be to God. Amen.